Well, I know that um, at least some of you have kept your finger in Philippians chapter 3 in anticipation for continuing on. And Lord willing, over the next few months, we'll finish up this, this epistle. Now, Philippians chapter 3, you'll recall, is Paul's testimony to the Philippians. He shares his testimony. And we see, interestingly enough, that he begins with warnings to the believers that they are not to place any confidence in their own flesh. And this is exactly what Paul had done as he described himself, how he himself came out of a religious system focused on man's achievement, a combination of pedigree and practices, performances really, from what we saw. And Paul declares in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. In verse 7, he implies this pivotal moment, that of the true circumcision that he experienced, his heart's circumcision, regeneration, when he writes, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. His spiritual eyes opened in a moment to see that all that was his past was of no use. This is Paul's conversion. He counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, according to verse 8. And Paul then also recognized this new legal standing that he enjoyed. In verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is justification, to be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, having his righteousness imputed upon us. Paul described then the sanctification process. And you see, really, he's just going through the doctrine of salvation, maybe not thoroughly, but certainly touching on certain points. The sanctification process in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. But then he also refers to future glorification that he anticipates. Verse 11, that I may again, that I may rather attain to the resurrection from the dead. For Paul, Life was no longer bound up in clinging to the past or even looking to the present. But as one laid hold of, of by Christ, he now continuously exerts himself forward, striving toward that which lies ahead. And we saw from verse 15 and on exhortations. He exhorts the Philippians regarding the pattern and the character of Christian living. But for our purpose today, and because of the splendor of what Paul finishes this chapter with, I invite you to train your eyes to verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. That's where we'll return. Now, I went over this briefly in March, saying that I would return, because these verses are so glorious because Christ is glorious. Now, for 
The immediate context, though, let me begin in verse 17. Now, notice the exhortation. Brethren, join in, my, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. There's the exhortation. But then notice the contrast that follows as he contrasts the walk that he has just called them to with the walk of others that he sees in the world. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. And this brings us then to our text, the fitting closing, I would say, to this chapter, beginning in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which, we, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so allow me to make just two quick observations. Verses 20 and 21 are not out of context as sometimes as is is thought, but rather I would say that this is very fitting considering that he has spoken of his regeneration, his conversion, he's pointed to his justification, his sanctification. He's anticipating glorification, but he's also has his, his eyes fixed on Christ's return, marking the great consummation. And that's really what these last two verses are about, the great consummation. But then secondly, let's also observe how Paul packs these two verses full of theological themes. Now, some admittedly are more direct than others, but there would be no way to go through all that that I'd like to go through this morning. In verse 20, we see positional sanctification, citizens, citizenship in heaven. There's kingdom language in that. There's mention of the second advent of Christ, there are titles and names of the Son of God that are listed for us there. And there's also a sense of perseverance of the saints, God's preservation of those whom he has given genuine saving faith. And in verse 21, we also see the theological theme of perfected sanctification, glorification, the great consummation with the resurrection of the body and the glorification of the whole person. Like I say, there's no way that we could possibly go through all of that in depth. But what a glorious text this is. Now, having said all that, we do need to consider the question that is before us then. Why did Paul write these verses to the Philippians? Why are they included in the inspired word? And I would submit to you that he wrote these verses to highlight the nature of heavenly citizenship. To highlight the nature of heavenly citizenship. And that's why I've titled this sermon, The Nature of Heavenly Citizenship. But what do we mean by nature? Well, 
Nature typically refers to a set of properties, inherent distinguishing features or characteristics that make heavenly citizenship identifiable. And so there's a manifestation then of heavenly citizenship that we need to recognize. How is heavenly citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, manifested? Well, certainly, it's manifested in how the heavenly citizen thinks, how the heavenly citizen responds emotionally to the things that are going on in his or her life. What does the heavenly citizen will or desire? And so Paul features here two characteristics of heavenly citizenship so that you'll reflect that citizenship on earth in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, two two characteristics of heavenly citizenship so that you'll reflect that citizenship on earth in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you'll recognize that application really arises out of the key the key verse in this whole epistle, chapter 1 and verse 27, where he charges the Philippians to conduct themselves in that worthy manner. And so if you're taking notes, let's take a look at these two properties. First, we'll see the preoccupation of the heavenly citizen. The preoccupation of the heavenly citizen in verse 20. And then the anticipated consummation of the heavenly citizen in verse 21. The preoccupation and the anticipated consummation. Take a look again at verse 20 to see the preoccupation of the heavenly citizen. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to acknowledge two present realities here in this verse. These two factual statements that Paul makes. First, believers exist on this planet as citizens of heaven. That's a statement of fact. And notice there that kingdom language. Citizen, the citizenship is in heaven. It's great realities belong to us already, but our experience of it awaits still the future. So it's not yet a physical reality for us, but already a current positional reality. But what exactly does Paul have in mind here when he uses this term citizenship? He uses a Greek term, polytuma, polytuma which refers to a commonwealth or a state, a group of people or groups of people organized under a single government. Canada is a commonwealth country, right? And we are under the monarchy of England. I'm not too familiar with all of that, but um, I, I know that we're a commonwealth country. And so we're, we too, along with many other nations, are organized under a single government. Polytuma describes a colony of foreigners. And that's what Philippi was, it being a Roman colony with an influx of war veterans settling there after a very famous battle was won 
and it becoming then, uh, or it coming under the Roman Empire. And with Roman colony status came many privileges, and not only privileges, but immunities, including immunity to taxation. The result, Philippi's residents esteemed their Roman heritage, and they were committed to spreading Rome's customs, cultures, and laws with citizenship comes much obligation, responsibility, duty, together with benefits, those benefits being protection and rights. But they were nonetheless committed to spreading customs, culture, and laws in accordance with the Roman Empire. And so you can see, you can see Paul's reason for telling the believers in Philippi that their citizenship is in heaven. The local church exists as a colony of heaven. Grace life is a colony of heaven. Her members enjoying full citizenship, desiring to spread heaven's customs and culture and laws. We participate as fellow citizens with the saints and being of God's household, according to Ephesians 2 and 19. And we then are tasked with the responsibility of bringing the world to know of Christ's sovereignty. And at the same time, we don't allow our surroundings to redefine our identity or purpose. You see, we're in the world, but not of the world. And so there is a separation that occurs there. How do we carry out this task? How do we spread the customs, culture, and laws, if I use those terms? How do we do that here in our context? Well, we do that through evangelism, through gospel proclamation, desiring for others to come to a saving knowledge and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one's allegiance to Christ that then distinguishes that one as possessing heavenly citizenship. Now, take a look because there is a contrast. I mentioned it already. We see it in verses 18 and 19. We could compare those who Paul describes there to heavenly citizens, right? There's a comparison. Actually, a contrast maybe would be a better term. We see there that those that he describes in verses 18 and 19, they have a different walk. They conduct themselves differently. They have a different destiny, being enemies of the cross. They have a different end, which will be judgment and not glorification. They have a different preoccupation. They have set their minds on earthly things and not looking above where Christ is. They have a differing definition of glory. In fact, they glory in their own shame. And they have a different motivation, living for the present rather than looking to the future. Certainly nothing to eagerly wait for given their end, no doubt. And so we begin to get a sense here even of what heavenly citizenship looks like just by looking at how he contrasts it. So why does Paul accentuate the reality that our citizenship is in heaven? Why does he do this? Well, I would submit to you that he's calling the Philippians to faithful obedience. This is the purpose 
for him pointing this out. To join in following his example as he has written. To look intently at the pattern of walking that he and others are, dis- are displaying. To imitate those same attitudes and those same actions as they see in other faithful believers. And so that's, that's one reality. The reality that we already enjoy heavenly citizenship. But there's a second reality here that he points to in this verse, present tense indicative. So it's just a statement of fact that these heavenly citizens are eagerly awaiting a savior. Christ is coming. We can draw that implication easily from that. They're awaiting a savior because Christ is coming. Statement of fact from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this describes the heavenly citizens' eager anticipation, eager wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an enthusiastic anticipation that accompanies uh, the enthusiastic anticipation accompanies mention of our Lord's return actually throughout the New Testament. So this isn't not nearly the only place that we see it. In fact, there are only four books in the New Testament that do not make reference to his return. All the others do. And each time, a sense of eager, enthusiastic anticipation for his return. But let's, let's press into this just a little bit further to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. You see, he uses a a verb here that's constructed out of three words. Apekdekomai. Apekdekomai. Now this verb, uh, dekomai, first of all, means to receive. And it speaks of a welcoming reception for one who is coming to visit. Right? To receive someone is to welcome that person that's coming to visit. But there's also a preposition, actually two prepositions, attached to the front of this Verb. One is apple, which means off, which could speak of re- removing one's attention from other things. Okay? So the removal of attention from all, anything else, so that the anticipation of receiving, of welcoming, of giving that reception is solely on that visitor. And then the other preposition attached to this same verb is ek, which means out. It's often just simply translated as out, giving the sense of this being something that extends over time. And it serves to actually intensify what Paul is saying here. It's an intense yet patient yearning, an eager waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus in the air to take his bride to heaven with him the attention being withdrawn from all else and concentrated upon the Lord Jesus. This according to one commentator. Now we see this in other places, as I've already mentioned. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul makes mention of this in his prayer for the Corinthians, where he says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse 28 writes, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Again, Paul to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 23. And not only this, he writes, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And again in verse 25 of Romans 8. But if we wait, but if we rather hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. All of these, each of these making reference to the second advent, the coming of Christ. And Paul describes Christians in a young Thessalonian church in this way. He writes, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That out of 1 Thessalonians 1 and 9 and 10. And so we see a consistency here in Paul's instruction But also, we see a consistency in the believer's response, that being one of eagerly awaiting the Lord's return. But let's not miss another point here either. Now, I'm sure many of you can think back easily to your wedding day, right? As you eagerly anticipated that day to arrive, did you? Was that what you were really waiting for? Or were you waiting for that person whom you would be joined to? I would say it was the person and not the day. And so we need to recognize here that the heavenly citizen eagerly awaits for the person of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no coincidence that that Paul uses these two titles. Both of these titles would have been claimed exclusively by the Roman emperor. Now, the identifying confession in the empire of a Roman citizen was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And the commonly used title for Caesar in that same empire was that he was the savior of the world. And it's no coincidence that Paul uses these titles in such close proximity to the term citizenship in order to rightly calibrate the Philippian believer's perspective. You see, in their eternal heavenly citizenship with its divine Savior and Lord of glory, it's altogether incomparable with a temporal Roman citizenship with its string of fallen, fallible, and depraved saviors and lords. Let's make sure that we remember that. And this is exactly what Paul is pointing out to the Philippians. He wants them to recognize this. And the same holds true for us, each one here, coming from likely various differing national citizenships. We need to recognize first and foremost that our citizenship is in heaven and all else pales in comparison. 
Now, to finish this first point off, let's then consider three points of application. First, eagerly longing for Christ's return is evidence of God's work in preserving faith in the life of the believer. Okay? So as we eagerly anticipate Christ's return, this is clear evidence that God is continuing to do a work in us, to perfect us, to complete that which he has begun. This is the preservation of the saints. This is God's preserving work. Then the question needs to be asked, is this your desire that Christ would come soon? Now, today, in the next hour, the citizen of heaven longs for nothing more than that Christ would come and that he would come quickly. A second point of application here would be this. Friend, beware then of misplaced affections. We ought to long for Christ's return and not simply for the benefits that his return brings. You see, I know I'm guilty of this as well. I've often longed for the day when I would be free from sin, and no doubt you have as well. Freedom from pain and suffering. That's, this, is, this is something that we eagerly await, right? We can. Sometimes it's escape from consequences or punishment. Maybe it's reunion with lost ones in heaven. Well, not even heaven or eternal life itself, but only that we would eagerly anticipate the Lord's return, Christ's return. Why? Well, that we'd be able to behold our Savior, the one whom was pierced on our behalf, to gaze upon our Lord, to be in his presence. If anything else is your object of affection, then I would say that you need to check your heart for idolatry because it is lurking. Turn from it and affirm the surpassing value of knowing Christ and Christ alone. And do so so that you may gain Christ. So that's a second point of application. But thirdly, there's this. And it comes by way of a question. Is the imminent return of Christ making the right impression upon you? Is the imminent return of Christ making the right impression upon you? One commentator asks this question. Are you currently contemplating some sin? Perhaps dishonesty in business, trifling with sex outside of marriage, cheating on your taxes, harboring a contentious or divisive spirit, tearing down others' work, protecting your own interests while neglecting to address the physical and spiritual needs of others according to Christ's instruction. If that describes you and a whole host of other sins that are knocking on your door, then the return of the Lord Jesus Christ has not made its proper impression upon you because we are to be waiting and ready for his return that we would not be caught up in sin at the Lord's return. And apart from the application of God's saving grace 
and the work of his indwelling spirit, I would say eagerly awaiting the return of Christ should be the greatest agent of change in the life of the believer. Think about that. It should bring change in our lives on a daily basis, as long as it's at the forefront. And so we've seen the preoccupation of the heavenly citizen, that preoccupation being the return of Christ. Listen, also, secondly, consider the anticipated consummation of the heavenly citizen. We see this in verse 21. Train your eyes at the text. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his body of glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now this word transform, meta schematizo, it means to change the form or the fashion or appearance of something. Okay? It's a change in schema. You maybe heard the word schematic in that Greek term. The model undergoes a renovation, not replacement, but a renovation, right? We saw that renovation even in our Lord's resurrection as he pointed to his wounds, which were still very much evident. So this is a renovation of the body where the body of our humble state is made into conformity with the body of his glory. What is this body of our humble state? Well, it refers to the physical body that is fallen, that is in its carnal state. Romans 6 and verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, body of sin here refers to us being given over to sin, whether in physical weakness or by way of pleasure. And although possessing a new nature, the believer still finds himself or herself in this vehicle, this instrument that can easily commit sin. Some refer to it as the unredeemed flesh, of which the ability is to still sin and to even experience physical death. This is evidence that the flesh remains unredeemed. In Romans 8 and verse 13, we read this. Paul writes, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, although able still to sin in the physical body, the believer is to continuously put off sin, put to death the deeds of the body. Now, this was the body that Paul desired to depart from in order to be present with Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.8. And even in Philippians, earlier on in this epistle, in chapter 1, we saw that he, he yearned to depart and to be with Christ. He yearned to depart from this humble state. This humble state refers to life in our physical body, susceptible to humiliation in its fallenness, its corruptibility, its present frailty, its deterioration, suffering and sorrow, 
and inevitable death every person here faced with their own mortality. This is the humble state. Now, Paul wrote that Jesus in the kenosis took on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, right? This is the way Jesus is described in the incarnation as he comes to earth. In Romans 8 and verse 3, Paul also describes him this way, that God, having sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and so we could draw a comparison, and Spurgeon draws a comparison this way. He says this, our Savior had a body here in humiliation. Okay, now we need to understand that we're not talking about the exact same thing, but I think there's a comparison to be drawn here nonetheless. Our Savior had a body here in humiliation. That body was like ours in all respects, except that it could see no corruption, for it was undefiled with sin. And we know that from Hebrews 4 and 15. That body in which our Lord wept, the sweat and sweat great drops of blood and yielded up his spirit was the body of his humiliation. But then we know that Christ was raised again. He was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, that resurrection chapter, meaning that the resurrection of the only begotten was a new kind of human life being ushered in, a perfect life in the body, not subject to weakness, to aging, to death, a body perfectly able to live eternally without fading. But we also know that apart from Christ's resurrection, there is no certainty of life beyond the grave for anyone. Everything hinges on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all glory be to Christ, that we can have this perfect confidence, this perfect confidence that Paul even writes of in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 21 through 23. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be in there for a bit here. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the, of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's, when? At his coming. At his coming. But what will this look like at his coming? Well, we know that there will be a conformity with the body of his glory, even as Paul has mentioned here in Philippians 3, describing the glorification of the believer when the application of salvation or the application of redemption is consummated, it's made complete. And we see the order salutis that's described in Romans 8, 29 and 30. When that is finalized, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son 
so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? This is the consummation, the finalization of salvation. All ability to sin is eradicated. Effectively being saved from all sin, and not only all sin, but all sin's effects. Now, we see this described also in Revelation 21, where the eternal state is described. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Even death will be no more. Death being that consequence of original sin. And Paul also then, if you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives us a sense of what this glorified body will be like. We see this, we read about this promised glorified body, beginning in verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15, where he writes, so also is, this, is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. This is a lasting body, not subject to corruption, to decay, not given over to sickness or disease, as we've read out of, out of Revelation 21. And then in verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. This is a glorious body, free from any shame, perfectly suited to be pleasing to God, and free to genuinely praise and enjoy the Creator as we are in His midst. This is a glorious body. It is sown in weakness, he goes on to say in verse 43, it is raised in power. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Grudem describes it this way. Where the flesh was weak, the body will now be enabled to do what it was initially designed to do. To do as desired in conformity to the will of God. Perfect conformity to the will of God. And in verse 44, Paul goes on to describe the body this way, the glorified body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, let's not be confused about this. The word spiritual here does not indicate immaterial, though. Okay, This body is very much material, as our Lord's was. But this body, being a spiritual body, is uninhibited to perform holy impulses, to perform every holy impulse. And it does so in full submission and in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. And this is the spiritual body that we will have. Spurgeon also said this. He said, resurrection will be to the body what regeneration is to the soul. I think it's important to understand that. Resurrection will be to the body what regeneration is to the soul. Let's just admit that Christ does not save halfway. He doesn't save soul only and not body. 
Rather, both soul or spirit and body have been purchased at Calvary as we know. And together, the redeemed spirit and the resurrected body are fitted for eternal life on a new earth that will enjoy perfect communion with God. This is the whole person perfectly manifesting the glory of God with the body that is necessary for entrance into that eternal kingdom. I know that's a lot. That's a lot. And time and time again, as I've been studying through this passage this week, I've just been overwhelmed by joy. By joy as I anticipate the Lord's return. As I anticipate the day that this will be realized. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. He wrote, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And we have to admit that we know that Christ is easily able to do this. We saw this, we see this in verse 21 again of Philippians 3. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And we need to apply a literal hermeneutic here. What does all mean? All means all. He will subject all things to himself. And so Paul isn't describing here merely potential supernatural power. He is describing actual supernatural action. This he will easily do. And all enemies, even death, will be made a footstool according to the fulfillment of his promise. That promise we could see in in John chapter 6. We've heard our beloved pastor preach this very text. John 6 and verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that all that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There will be no opposition to this resurrection. Nothing will thwart God's plan of finalizing salvation, completing the salvation that he initiated. And Bavink writes, this is the real, the true resurrection won directly by Christ. For it is not just a reunion of soul and body, but also an act of vivification, a renewal It is an event in which believers united in soul and body enter into communion with Christ and are being recreated after God's image. And so in these verses, we have seen the preoccupation of the heavenly citizen in his eagerly awaiting the person of Christ, his return. And we've seen the anticipated consummation of the heavenly citizen. When at Christ's return, the whole person is glorified. The whole person. 
It would be irresponsible of me to not also mention this to you. Again, from Paul's words, this time 2 Thessalonians 1 and 7 and 8, where he writes, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so not everyone will be fitted with a glorified body, but others will no doubt still realize a consummation, but that consummation will result in them being fitted with a body to endure eternal punishment for having rejected the Lord of Lord, the Lord of Lords, the, the King of Kings. I pray that not be you. I pray that you would not remain in your sin if you sit here today and that you not continue to be preoccupied with the things of this world. It'll only lead to your demise and your eternal demise. But rather, God has sent his son. And we serve a God who saves and saves completely. You've heard that this morning. And so if you are here still in sin, I would ask that you would, I would plead, in fact, that you would throw yourself at the mercy of God, seek his forgiveness, and believe on the finished work completed on the cross, that work being of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would trust in him and be greatly encouraged and look forward and anticipate the day of his return. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this sweet text, this great anticipation that we have where we eagerly await the return of our Lord to set all things right, to be in his presence, to bask in his glory, to share in it. Well, Father, I pray that this would that this would be our ongoing yearning, that each day and each hour would we be contemplating, is this the day? We know that our Lord's return is imminent. And so may we be found, Father, living as we ought in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We pray this. In his precious name, amen.